Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to the Pre-Hospital Podcast. Okay, welcome back to the Pre-Hospital Podcast for Episode 2 of Season 2. In this second part of my conversation with the paramedic Justin Thomas, we discuss RSI, research, Justin's journey to becoming a PhD student, and how to move to South Africa to work as a paramedic for those who are interested and work in other countries. Before we get into that, some of the usual pre-med updates. And so we ran a really successful webinar on Saturday, and I just want to say a big thank you to everyone that attended, and a hello to any new listeners following that. We're now planning events for the next few months, including further ECG interpretation sessions and a number of events with some really experienced and knowledgeable guest speakers. Details for all of these events are available on our website at www.prem-ed.com workshops. Our next webinar for those who are interested is tomorrow, uh, Tuesday the 16th of March. Uh, I'll be welcoming Lance Gray, who's a paramedic and nurse, uh, for a two-hour presentation on acute respiratory failure and ABG interpretation. Lance is a really experienced clinician and educator who has worked uh, pre-hospitally and in-hospitally, recently for the critical care outreach team during the COVID pandemic, and now as part of the medical emergency team at a large teaching hospital in Australia. So really looking forward to that event. Uh, Tickets are still available, but sales will end tomorrow at midday, so do Uh, check that out and grab a ticket if you're interested. And if that's not enough ABG learning for you, we've just launched a new ABG interpretation pocket card, which is available for $4.99 at the pre-med shop on our website. Uh, But that's enough advertising for now. Uh, Let's get on with the episode. Um, You touched on in the discussion around autonomy, discharge and... Um, kind of practice in, in, in those terms. I'd be interested to to hear about how that works in uh, for for paramedics abroad. So, so in the UK we have, I'd say quite a significant level of autonomy in terms of discharging patients. So, 
you know, in the past, kind of five, ten years ago, I think there's even more autonomy, and there's been a, a few layers of safety put on top of that. But so, so essentially now, when you qualify as a newly qualified paramedic, um, for the first two years, you're you're ta- you're considered a newly qualified paramedic, and your ability to discharge patients at home is restricted. Um, but but mm. once you have that experience and you move out of that newly qualified uh, framework into uh, what we call band six practice essentially um, but more autonomous yeah. practice um, paramedics are f- fairly autonomous in, in the ability to discharge patients um, leave them at home or refer them to other teams in the community um, and I wonder if that's something that is kind of reflected in in your experience both in South Africa and in, in Saudi Arabia or is it more restricted is it more lenient how, how does it work um, uh, in the South African setting, in our new guidelines that were developed, they say that on-scene discharge is it's the same as under the previous scope. So basically, um, it's a very context-dependent decision where you are making that decision with your uh, patient uh, according to their needs and whatever it is that they choose to uh, choose to do. That's sort of how you get away with it. If you believe that the person should be going to a hospital or there's some sort of um, disagreement, then you can phone for medical backup for, or for consultation from your um, uh, medical officer that's on duty, or they say a senior emergency care practitioner, which is um, a paramedic with a bachelor degree, um, uh, and then you can get sort of consultation on what to actually do within that setting. Um, uh, In terms of autonomy, just broadly, the South African setting, we're very autonomous in what we do. Um, uh, There isn't a lot of consultation that needs to take place uh, from a scope of practice standpoint. Um, Basically, apart from managing acute hypertension and um, uh, fibrinolysis or thrombolytics, you can basically do what you need to huh. um, as, a, as an ECP. The sort of lower skill sets, uh, they have some specific skills where they need to consult, either with a, a, an ECP or a, a medical doctor. Um, so that's sort of how autonomy would work in that sense. In the Saudi setting, again, it's very different because it's dependent on your your organization. So because there's no national framework, it's dependent exclusively on what your company says you can or cannot do. Um, so yeah, Fair within enough. our specific organization, we practice it obviously because of the legal challenges. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with bringing a person back into the country versus letting them continue with their flight. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so you kind of mentioned um, interventions there as well, and again that's another interesting thing. So so, so historically in the UK, um, as the the difference um, on pa- in in terms of interventions between a technician and a paramedic, at very early stages they'd call it I and I, so intubation and infusion, and and the yes. the, the introduction of paramedics brought um, vascular access and IV fluids and IV medications, um, and advanced airway management in terms of intubation for a cardiac arrest. And so, and that's that's developed quite significantly. And now, our um, standard paramedic can um, has a number of airway interventions, 
Um, and depending yeah. on the service, some are still able to intubate during cardiac arrest and some aren't. Um, and there's a formulary of probably 30 to 40 medications. So standard things, pain relief, morphine, um, things like furosemide, fluids, yeah. kind of what you'd expect standard emergency medical medications. Mm. And in terms of specialist practice for our um, urgent emergency care specialists, um, they are able to um, give on what we have a patient group directive, which is not prescribing, but a kind of um, a template of, of when you can and can't give medications to people. And so, so using yeah. that um, framework, they can give people antibiotics and um, kind of steroids and other stronger pain, like long-term pain relief options. Um, and, mm -hmm. and in my specialism of critical care, um, we have things like sedation um, and post-ROSC paralysis um, and then in interventions such as cardioversion and pacing and kind of okay. thoracostomies and things like that. Um, yeah. the, the, one of the big conversations, um, which maybe we'll, we'll come on to, is around intubation. But I in the UK, paramedics historically have all been able to intubate in cardiac arrest, um, so not uh, drug-assisted. And, and that's yeah. something that's being pulled back from a lot of paramedics um, based on academic arguments. Um, but there's no paramedic program in, in the UK that delivers drug-assisted intubation. Okay, so um, in terms of scope of practice for ECPs within the South African setting, um, uh, we carry about 70 medications with us. Um, and it's a plethora of different like pain medications. We've got a host of different sedation agents as well as induction agents. Um, uh, we carry uh, paralytics, um, both short-acting and long-acting paralytics. We have uh, antihypertensive medications. So I qualify that we carry calcium channel blockers, beta blockers. We have um, uh, like IV nitrates as well as sublingual, sublingual nitrates. Um, uh, and then you, we also do things like beta-2 stimulants, for example. So uh, we carry both inhalation and inhaled and systemic ones. Uh, then we've got a whole host of different um, antiarrhythmic medications as well. So, you know, we can give like local or systemic lignocaine, we can do amiodarone, we can do um, adenosine, atropine, adrenaline for, um, you know, bradycardias or whatever if your atropine isn't working. Um, so there's a lot that we can give from that standpoint. Yeah. Um, then we carry like antidiarrheals if you are working in a um, remote site setting, you can do antidiarrheals, there's antiparasitics, there's a whole, you know, like, um, even things like uh, our corticosteroids, we have like the normal stuff, you know, like solucortif and all of that, uh, prednisolone, methylprednisolone, but then they've also added onto our scope um, dexamethasone and uh methasone. okay yeah it's, it's interesting uh, so those are, those are skills to give those ones you have to then phone Fine. for consultation because they've been newly added onto it um in terms of like inotropes again we have adrenaline but then we also have dopamine and dobutex or dobutamine as well that we can give um 
so there's a very big sort of range yeah, of yeah. medications that we can use and most of them you can use autonomy autonomously you don't have to actually phone it's interesting so so in the uk so so again to take to take my specialty um to justify us having um, a broader scope of practice in terms of sedation agents um kind of higher level interventions um mm-hmm. to to justify that because they're not um too common it's not too common to to provide those interventions to to justify having that scope of practice we do regular update kind of skills assurance um mm. in in terms of debriefing jobs um discussing cases with our on-call uh, consultants and um doing moulage kind of scenario training um yeah. and that's comparatively it seems like a, a fairly small scope of practice kind of specialized but a lot smaller than than what you're describing in south africa so so with that broad scope of practice and and availability of interventions how does that match up to kind of day-to-day practice is are they some are they things you regularly use or they are and is that because of rurality do you think or i think that it's dependent it's first it's dependent on the service that you work in um and then your specific location so if you're working in um, a CBD type um, uh, setting with large highways and things like that, you get lots of road traffic accidents, um, pedestrian vehicle accidents, motorbike accidents with pretty severe trauma. Trauma in South Africa is quite a big um, chunk of the, the core volumes that we see. Um, even in terms of things like assaults and stuff like that, some of them can be horrific uh, when you are you know, treating the patients. So it's a skill set that we use quite often. Um, they, in terms of airway management, we RSI as the sort of gold standard, but we don't have other forms of um, drug-assisted intubation. So it's basically RSI or nothing, um, which I think is good because that is sort of the safest mechanism to do it in. Um, before RSI was introduced, we did use drug-assisted, and I was around when that was the, the primary mode, yeah. and it's significantly different. And the ease of performing the skill under um, RSI is far better than under um, other forms of drug-assisted or deep sedation, or whatever the case may be. So. Um, from that standpoint, it is something that we actually do quite regularly. Uh, when I was a paramedic in the public health sector or the public um, services sector, at least once a shift. You'd be oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so was... and, and is that something that's kind of supported? Like, like I say, we have these governance, um, every couple of months we have governance meetings where we discuss cases. And is that something that you guys would um debrief and discuss in the kind of D setup as a team or or with medical input or you know how does that work because because you know in in non-specialist practice again there's very little training provided by the ambulance service and it's all kind of do it in your own time and so opportunities to discuss practice and whether you made the right or wrong decision and how you could adjust that in the future is is rare <laughs> um but we're um, lucky to be supported in doing that um, yeah. Is that something you guys would do? Is that standard practice, or 
So clinical governance within the South African setting is quite a formal process, and most um, organizations or services have their own clinical governance structures. So the ones that I worked for, every RSI that you did would undergo clinical governance. Um, when I qualified, it was a skill that had been newly added onto our um, scope. So the first 10 RSIs that we did, we had to consult first, and then afterwards we could do them you know, autonomously. Um, but every patient who gets RSI will go through to the company's clinical governance um, department and undergo clinical governance. And that clinical governance officer will then talk with you about your decisions if they've like highlighted any irregularities or whatever. Yeah. Similarly with patients who may, it may have seemed like it was indicated to manage an airway, but it wasn't. They will also flag those ones and they will discuss your decision making in terms of that. Yeah. So there is formal um, pathways for those things. Informally, it's clinician dependent. Good practice is after you've had a major um, case or whatever to sit and do a debrief with your your team. But whether or not that actually takes place on the ground is. Yeah, yeah. So we yeah like a, a hot debriefing as as we're telling yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, Fine. If we take the topic of RSI then, it might bridge nicely into my last kind of question for you around your academia and, and PhD and stuff. Um, sure. So so taking the topic of RSI then and looking, kind of bridging to the academic discussion about the, the research and stuff behind it. Um, as I mentioned, in, in, in the UK, um, the skill of intubation, um, even in cardiac arrest, is being drawn back and that's on an evaluation of evidence globally that suggests paramedics aren't particularly good at intubating. Um, however, I don't think, it, in my opinion, um, looking at that evaluation, it doesn't really take into account, as we've discussed, the, the, the vast differences in paramedic education and practice. Um, yeah. And and so I think even, even our HEMS teams, who are kind of normally doctor-led, I don't think they're... I don't know the actual statistics, but I think their RSI statistics probably aren't too different um, from from what you're describing in South Africa. So, so in with that intervention in South Africa, do you what are your results? What are your kind of are there, are there published results in terms of success rates and and um, adverse effects, or what's the kind of evidence base that supports that? And you know, is that a generally accepted thing because it's massively controversial in the UK? Um. <laughs> Intubation as a skill in the South African setting was very controversial. I don't know if it still is a very controversial topic. Um, uh, from my standpoint, uh, deep sedation intubation is a no-go anyways. So I was very on board with moving to RSI. Tell me, um, what, why is that of interest? Because of the drug, the volumes of medication that you need to give to actually achieve optimal um, levels of consciousness so that your patient is um, accepting the tube. So if you look at um, a gag, the evidence shows that one gag reflex in a head injured patient increases mortality by 60%. Mm. So if you have a patient that is not sufficiently sedated and they're having multiple gags, your mortality 
is just skyrocketing. Yeah, yeah. So when you're looking at um, uh, deep sedation versus rapid sequence induction um, and paralysis in particular, it's about managing that gag and how easily the patient is accepting that medication or the tube. Um, then on top of that, there are many sort of patients where they require intubation almost prophylactically, if you want to say that. So because of predicted course, yeah. we predict that this person is anaphylactic, his airway is going to close, but he's not, he doesn't have a decrease or she doesn't have a decreased level of consciousness. So we have to induce that patient to manage the, the airway. You can't achieve that with deep sedation at the, the safe dosages. So you have to then move on to induction agents um, or general anesthetics really to achieve those kind of things. Mm. So if you look at the medications that we carry in the South African setting, our induction agent is etomidate and ketamine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, you can use sort of fentanyl in very specific settings. Um, so those are the ones that we would predominantly do. Um, they've started with Sala. Is it very loud on your side? Or I was going to say, actually, it's quite a nice um, backing track. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> this is not distracting. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, because sometimes it can be extremely loud. So, I just, yeah, want to see. So, if you look at the other medications that you would use or that we were using previously, midazolam um, predominantly. Uh, but you could also use lorazepam or diazepam if you wanted to. They don't actually bring that patient from GCS15 to GCS3. And that's sort of what you want. Yeah. Um, whereas if you're using an induction agent, you are going to bring them down, and you're going to bring them down quickly and safely with minimal effects on blood pressure. So I think from that standpoint, and especially in many of the circumstances under which we are intubating a patient, um, hemodynamics is a very important factor in patient outcomes. Um, and the, the way that you manage the medication from that standpoint will obviously affect that patient outcome. So that's why a combination of um, a benzo and an opiate for intubation is just, it's not feasible. Um, however, using ketamine, using etomidate, etomidate has minimal effects on um, blood pressure and hemodynamic status at all, only in very specific instances. Um, is it, does it affect that? And uh, ketamine actually promotes sort of blood pressure elevation. So it causes you an, uh, release of adrenaline, which stabilizes your blood pressure, um, which is quite nice. So from that standpoint, then you get obviously the paralysis, which completely takes out the gag, which helps from that side. Um, So that's why I don't, or I advocate RSI over drug-assisted. Yeah. And and so how long, so that that process from going from drug-assisted to RSI delivery as a country or... Uh, region how how long did that take like when how long has rsi been accepted standard of practice and was it a difficult transition um uh, from my side i started 
studying my bachelor degree in 2008, and it was being discussed in 2008. By the time I'd gotten into my third year, it was sort of accepted that this is the route that we're going from a profession regulation standpoint. Um, uh, but where it only, where it formally sort of came onto the scope of practice for ETPs was, I would say, around 2011, 2012, sometime then. Um, uh, but then within the new guidelines that were released in 2016 and then approved in 2018, that has formally recognized that we no longer do drug-assisted or other forms of intubation. It's only RSI. Fine. And is there, is the, the profession in South Africa, is it a, a you, as a profession, are you engaged in research? Do you publish a lot of this data? Um, I, my my feeling person is that the the paramedic profession in the UK is although it's it's becoming a lot better and we have positions for research paramedics and stuff now it just doesn't publish and put out mm. as much academia as as many other professions is, is my personal kind of view on things. What well, how is that in in South Africa? I think that within the look for you to get your bachelor degree you have to do research. It's a formal part of the bachelor degree process. So in your third year, you do uh, research methodology one, which is basically an introduction to research um, uh, and research methods, all of that kind of stuff. And then in your fourth year, you do a research project. Um, uh, so by the time people leave and they begin clinical practice, many people are not um, focused on research at all. They are looking to develop the clinical practice. It's only much later when they begin to go and do like a master's or something like that, that they would then consider um, studying research or doing research as a long-term career option or whatever the case may be. Um, but yeah, so every student who has a bachelor degree will have done some form of research, but whether that research continues post-grad is debatable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, fair and, enough. And then, and then in terms of publishing and stuff like that, they do some, if the, the project is um, worth publication, then obviously it will be accepted and they'll push for it. Um, the Emergency Care uh, Council of South Africa has a formal journal that is dedicated to that. Um, Africa also has a, the African Journal of Emergency Medicine, which people publish a lot in. Um, so there are, there are opportunities to publish, but from an organization standpoint, like, I think that it would really only be those clinicians that are actually formally doing a master's or a PhD who would be the ones who are actually publishing. Um, yeah, that's from that standpoint. And so I, I'm, I'll take even you... doing research rather, let's also just say that even yeah. doing research formally, yeah. So I take it you're one of those people having progressed through a few MSCs and, and now doing the PhD. What what kind of led you to apply or, or what, what was the kind of journey that led you to doing this PhD? Um, uh, it's an interesting question and I was actually asked this specific question about two days ago. So I'll give the same answer. <laughs> well practiced. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> 
So for me, the decision to um, do a PhD was rooted really in how it is going to actually promote my career. How does it fit into my career progression? Um, uh, what I had recognized in practice is, is that the, the airport healthcare sector is largely underdeveloped. I felt that I didn't really have the, the skill set necessary to formally address that, prob that problem. And I wanted to do it in a more formal manner and then just, you know, implementing it in my setting and then that's that. So I actively sought to do it as a research project because I thought then I can get supervisory um, advice on how to actually go about systematically addressing the issues, analyzing the system, and get results that are accurate and can be usable in our setting. So my project ends up developing a system model for what an airport healthcare service should be um, uh, through a whole host of different processes to get that information. Um, but basically, I sat there and I thought to myself, okay, cool. What kind of, um, what is my goal career-wise? Do I want to be in academia? Do I want to be working in industry? Or do I want a mixture of both? I determined that I'd wanted a mixture of both, um, working in both industry and academia. Then I thought to myself, what kind of an expert do I want to be? Do I want to be an expert in uh, qualitative research, quantitative, um, mixed methods, multi-method, you know, clinical trials specifically, or whatever the case may be. Um, I thought that I wanted to be more general because I like health organization research. So mixed methods it is, um, and multi-methods. Um, and then what the next question that I asked myself is, what was the disciplinary focus that I was interested in studying? So was I interested in paramedicine specifically? in um, disaster medicine? Was it, uh, you know, health operations or management or health education or whatever the case may be? And then the last sort of question that I asked myself was, uh, what topic do I want to be an expert in? And that would basically be something like critical care or trauma or um, systems or simulation management or whatever the case may be. Um, from that, I then went back and I sort of looked at the, the research gap. So what has been done in airport healthcare, what hasn't been done in airport healthcare? Um, and it turned out that there was very little that had been done in airport healthcare, <laughs> so I really asked <laughs> any question I wanted to, that was nice. <laughs> um, so from there, then I developed uh, my research question. And then once I had done that, I needed to go back and have a look to see what skills do I want to have developed by the time I'm finished with this project. Um, because I think that going into a PhD, a lot of people don't think about that. They, they think that it is only really a, um, a research project focused thing, and then that's what you do. But it's actually what I found in my like sort of reading and learning about the process of doing a PhD and the purpose of it is that the project is really the least important thing. 
in the whole process. Mm. It's actually the tool that you use to develop all of the other professional skills that you want to take with you in your career. So going back and understanding what is it that you want to achieve by doing this project or by doing a PhD then is going to help you determine or plan your PhD better. Um, So once I had gotten my research questions sorted, then it was about what type of doctoral degree did I want to do? Did I want to do a PhD? Did I want to do a doctor of public health, a doctor of education? Um, That kind of thing. I originally wanted to do a doctor of public health, um, but I couldn't find a suitable program that allowed for me to work and study simultaneously. Um, So then I ended up looking at where are the institutions where you can sort of do a PhD in a flexible way that is part-time but also um, distance (laughs) And, um, and still a good school. So that was something that was also important for me personally. Um, and I saw the DPhil in evidence-based healthcare um, shared on Twitter by one of the professors at the school, and that was like, okay, let me have a look at this one. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I applied twice to it. The first time I didn't get accepted, and then the second time I did. Um, so with different projects. So okay. that was sort of my research journey. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and how 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 many years into it are you? Oh, no, I only started in October last year. Oh, okay, fine. So how are you finding it so far? Um, I like the process of it, actually. I like my supervisors are fantastic. Um, They are extremely supportive, extremely flexible. And the way that I've gone about doing it is very systematic. So I have developed a learner guide for my entire degree program. Yeah, one of my objectives for me personally is that I wanted to learn to be both an independent researcher, but also an independent educator. And so at the end of the day, I needed skills in terms of curriculum design and all of those kind of things. So I developed a learner guide that can systematically design what I want to learn in what fields I want to learn and how I want to learn them. And how I'm going to go about capturing it, all of that kind of stuff. So that's the purpose of the learner guide for me. Um, and it actually has worked out pretty well from that standpoint. It's given me a very clear outline. Yeah, is, is that a personal thing or is that something you've developed to share? Oh, I can share it. I don't mind. <laughs> no, I was just wondering me. if it's something that was, you know, something you've published or, you know, something that would be useful to others or, or whether that was more kind of just your learning process. I think that it is, it's something that could be useful to other people because it is a little bit um, more systematic and explicit. Um, so it gives a very clear description of what it is that you're looking to achieve and how you want to go about doing that. But I think that it's also very project dependent and very course dependent. If you're in a doctoral program where you have a formal curriculum, then it might not make sense to have a learner guide for the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. For us, where it's a research-only um, degree, there is no formal curriculum, there is no formal skills development or anything like that. So I developed that for me. Um, Fair enough. 
and I've shared that my supervisors know about it, they have input on it, and it is actually, it's worked out to be a reporting framework for me as well, a way that I can um, account for the training and the learning that I have done throughout the whole process and share that information in a standardized way with my supervisors um, on a monthly basis. So Nice. I just just while it, you you reminded me, so just while we're on the topic, if you do you follow, I'm sure you do, um, the paramedic PhD Twitter page. Yeah. 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 I just thought I'd I'd give that a little shout out, and and if there's anyone that's interested, um, kind of in following this research journey that's listening, it's it's yeah, it's definitely worth a, a look on that page. Um, yeah. I'd suggest. And that page is very helpful, both in terms of just seeing what research is currently being done at a doctoral level but also identifying a supervisor um, uh, in that, you know, in whatever field it is that you're looking for, um, because it registers both doctoral students as well as potential supervisors. So really a nice resource from that standpoint. Um, nice one. Um, thanks for that. I think just as we draw it to a close, I um, it would be remiss of me not to ask uh, a question from Twitter. So, sure, yeah. so and I think you saw it, but one of the comments um, from Mark Treacy, Treacy, um, w- one of his questions was around um, the the so back to kind of clinical practice. He he, he was asking the makeup of crews, a combination of um, clinical grades, um, both in South Africa and and in Saudi Arabia. And I know we've discussed um, in South Africa about having this. Uh, the, the kind of skill mix between paramedics and and lesser qualified staff um mm. but but how does that work in in saudi arabia so because in the uk we have um so we have local ambulance services provide medical care in airports for instance and we have um single response paramedics on bicycles as well as support from ambulance crews is my very um, inexperienced understanding of it so, so how does that work in airport practice do you have individual practitioners or teams of people that go around like what's the makeup of that so it would be very dependent on your airport setting again but within our setting we have um, currently either a nurse or a paramedic with a um, an emt or somebody who has some form of short course medical training with them that person we call them ambulance attendants and they basically will be responsible for driving the vehicle um, and assisting the clinic clinician uh, with providing care so like you know putting on the um the equipment and things like that the monitoring yeah. equipment yeah, yeah, all yeah. of those kind of things and then we have a primary response vehicle with a specialist paramedic on there that will respond if they are required um, so we only respond to like major incidents, like a road traffic accident, or an aircraft that has been diverted, or something like that. Um, in the country as a whole, uh, again, it's dependent on the, the organisation. But uh, most commonly, what you see is a combination of uh, an EC or a specialist paramedic and a technician paramedic on the ambulance. They can have um, primary response vehicles, and those might have a, um, a doctor on board with a okay. um, a paramedic specialist that would be on board in terms of that. Okay, so that's actually extremely similar to the UK. So we yeah. have. Um, have you ever spent time in the UK? Actually, 
I actually haven't. No, no. I just got, kind of got this feeling I was just telling you about stuff that you probably know lots about. But um... no, no, it's been very interesting actually learning about the system because different to what my friends have told me when they've moved into that system. Really? Which I think was, yeah, it was something that we wanted to close on was... The moving, yeah. I was just—I think it's interesting, and I—I—I I, I discussed with a paramedic, Jace Mullen, who's um, in the USA, about the differences, and the—the the aim of the podcast was to discuss international differences, and ultimately, what we mm. realise is that actually there's a lot more similarities, and it yeah. certainly—it certainly seems the same thing with with our discussion. Um, like yeah. in terms of the makeup, the, the qualifications, and the academic the academic backgrounds seem similar. Um, mm-hmm. as well as the combination of specialties or, or, or qualifications on an ambulance. And, and then, yeah, like, like you say, we have HEM services, which are predominantly doctor-led, but also um, various charities throughout the UK that provide a ground um, EMS response, but, but doctor-led yeah. as well. Um, I think that that's something that is quite different in the South African setting. Most of the hymns that I'm aware of in South Africa don't have doctors on them. Okay, yeah. They would be uh, either two ECPs or an ECP and an ECT, and the technician that would be on there. Yeah. Your doctors, you find them more in your um, fixed-wing era medical services right. where they are doing it that way. Yeah. Um, and then in that setting, if it is a fixed-wing service, it would be a doctor and an ECP. Um, an emergency care practitioner that would be on that one yeah nice thank you for that and um, lo- like you said i think the, the the thing to close on was that um the possibility of kind of moving around these these countries and so you mentioned you've got some colleagues who have moved to the uk or, or away from um yeah so there are south african trained paramedics so firstly you can find south african trained paramedics anywhere in the world we are <laughs> <laughs> quite broadly dispersed um, so the countries that we commonly go to is Australia slash New Zealand because their system is very similar to ours. Um, and then we've got lots of people in the Middle East, uh, Qatar and UAE predominantly, um, and then me and Saudi. Um, and then UK, there are a couple of us who have immigrated to UK and they've now transitioned into the UK system. Um, where they are able to actually work that way. Um, In terms of coming to South Africa from that standpoint, we do actually allow for that to happen, but it's quite a lengthy process. Right. Um, So the... I actually wrote down notes if people want to know about what qualifications they need, all of these kind of things, to transition. Yeah, I mean, even a brief summary, because I can stick... If you're right to share those notes, I can put them in the show notes for the episodes, um, if people have more of an interest but yeah just just a kind of overview i think it'd be useful yeah sure so um uh, there's a formal application where you fill out a form um uh, and you apply to the health professions council of south africa mm. with that and basically what you need is sort of notarized copies of your qualifications um transcripts of your academic qualifications and a detailed curriculum yeah. of what you covered in there that then also need your qualification must be certified by the South African Qualifications Framework as well, um, accepted with that, and you need that certificate. Um, and then uh, your you need proof of uh, professional, sorry, practical training um, in emergency care. You also then need um, a letter from your workforce, you know, giving you a recommendation and describing mm. the type of work that you do. 
you need a certificate of good standing from your uh, health profession authority in the country that you're coming from. Yeah. Um, and then a copy of your actual registration with that licensing body. Um, and then obviously things like your ID documents, so your passport and then a valid work visa. Um, and then payments of your application fee. <laughs> 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 of course. So it's quite a, a lot. Uh, is it? From the standpoint, to act, uh, no, I think from oh, the UK I, standpoint, it's nothing. But uh, well, no, I what understand. I mean is the number of things that you've got to have in your application. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're applying. So, yeah. It's, 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 it, is, it is a lot, but I mean, I've applied for jobs recently that want the same and more than, the same as and more than. And, and you know, that's in the UK. So, so I think in terms of taking education from another country and bring it into i think it's 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 fair enough and it's it's encouraging to hear that there are those things in place i certainly historic you know kind of earlier in my career i was i was always torn well still am to, to some extent between um uh kind of really pursuing a specialist career in paramedic practice or um or pursuing a career in medicine and mm. um one of the big things that i found with medicine is that you know once you have once you're qualified as a doctor it seems relatively easy to to move around the world you know it's a, it's a fairly recognized qualification and, and certainly that was one of the things with paramedic with, with being a paramedic that always kind of concerned me a bit is you know i don't know if i'd want to move but you what i will say sorry to interrupt you no, no, just in terms of um moving to south africa as a doctor it's very difficult oh is it okay very just South Africa doesn't recognize a lot of foreign um, medical degrees. Oh, that's interesting. Very. But it's because the scope of the general practitioner in South Africa is substantial. Um, and I think that, that in a lot of different countries and different frameworks, the general practitioner is not as sort of broadly rounded, if you want to call it that, as yeah. they are in South Africa. Um, okay. so they're very strict in terms of that I there was I know of a surgeon who was a qualified surgeon in his home country I think he was German he came to do some electives or whatever to get more experience in South Africa uh, firstly if you are a foreign um, trained specialist you can only register as supervised practice in South Africa oh wow okay yeah then you have to undergo like formal assessment. If you want to register as a specialist in South Africa, you have to redo your whole speciality in South Africa. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so okay, not, not that easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and that was his challenge. So he came here, he did some uh, training in um, surgery. Because we have such a huge um, volume of trauma and stuff like that, he did a lot of different skills throughout that year. When he went back to Germany, they told him he was lying in the amount of skills that he yeah, had really? actually done. So they didn't recognize him and there was like a whole issue there. Wow. They wouldn't let him re-register. So he had to come back and then he had to redo his surgical training in South Africa in order to actually practice. So from that standpoint, it's very difficult. Very difficult. So actually easier to be a paramedic and go to South Africa by, by the sounds of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's um, interesting. Yeah. Like I say, it's it's useful to that it's it's encouraging that those things are in place. Um, because I think 
a lot of people I think would be put off by the idea that you're probably or you, you know maybe by the misconception that you might be the first person trying to do that and having to start from scratch um so f so for there to be a formal process that people can look up is what I would definitely say about those considering to come and do an elective or a stint or whatever within the South African setting is it's extremely good for getting experience and especially from a volume standpoint. Um, uh, you know, it's not uncommon in our um, services to do 30, 40, 50 calls per ambulance kind of thing in a day. Um, that is very, very common. How does, that, um, so, how does that work? So we we do eight, I'd say, on average, in a twelve-hour shift. Probably see eight people. That's yeah, that's not a lot. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's a fairly busy shift. It's a very busy shift, um, and you tend to so you do a lot of volume, yeah, and quite a broad variety of calls, which is also quite nice. Um, what I liked about the South African setting is you really see the sort of textbook definition of disease um, because in many cases, um, South Africans would prefer to sort of pursue a, a traditional medicine route first to right. treat their ailments. When that fails, then they'll access the Western medical services, okay, yeah. um, formal medical services. So you tend to see... Uh, really serious patients um, with the full manifestations of their diseases and that is really good for practice yeah, um, yeah and then again like a busy shift if you're working sort of in specific areas on an end of the month uh friday night or saturday night not uncommon to intubate like five six seven times on that wow. one <laughs> on, on multiple patients, I take it, not just trying yes, again. Yeah, again. <laughs> yeah, not unsuccessful attempt. <laughs> <laughs> no, so yeah, on lots of different patients. Um, uh, and again, because if you are a, an ECP, skills are limited. So you, you're thinly distributed and you have a large uh, you know, service area. Mm. So you go out to a lot of different types of calls. Um, so from that standpoint, uh, clinical practice and experience-wise, very good to gain practical experience. Um, yeah, interesting. And good quality uh, experience as well. You'll really, you'll get difficult, nice patients. Um, yeah, nice. Well, that's a nice, nice thing to close on. I think that'd be certainly useful listening for, for people. Um, well, I appreciate you coming on. I think we've covered a lot of stuff and um, it's been a really interesting discussion, actually. Um, yeah, it as well. Thank you. Again, like I say, it's, it's kind of, as as I had the experience of Jace, it, it seems there's more similarities than, than differences um, mm. than I expected. Um, but yeah, no, I appreciate you coming on. Have you got any kind of closing comments or advice or anyone or anything to people that are listening? Um, nothing sort of that really comes to mind. I just think that it's exciting the way that the, the career or our profession is progressing. And I think that the future of paramedicine is quite bright. So I'm excited to see where we go with it. And the more paramedic scientists that we begin to put out, I think the faster that progression will actually take place. Um, so go for it. Don't be scared to go and do 
master's degrees and things like that. And also don't feel that it's necessary to do it in a clinical specialty. Yeah. You can do a master's in management, master's in political science or whatever. Diversify the field so that we can develop paramedicine as a whole, not just the clinical aspect of it, because we also need these other systems, you know. So, yeah. Um, yeah that like it. Nice. Good advice. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> nice one. Well, thanks very much for coming on. Um, yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.